Amen. Thank you, praise team, for leading us in a time of song. Um, welcome to Praxis, um, another opportunity to gather as a fellowship group around Christ and His Word to be stretched and challenged through the teaching of Scripture. Um, we, as a young adult fellowship group, have been studying the book of Romans for quite some time, and tonight we're going to plow through and continue our series by looking at Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. So if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn there to Romans 13. Um, as you are making your way over there, the interesting thing about exposition is that sometimes you encounter passages that are hard, uncomfortable, um, even boring, right? I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. Forgive me, Lord. Um, but we need to go passage by passage through the word of God because it is for our own maturation, right? Like, Kind of like if you only cherry-picked or uh, chose to hear messages on your favorite passages, you'd probably be lopsided. You wouldn't be very healthy. We need a steady diet of God's word. And uh, one way we achieve that is by studying scripture systematically, going verse by verse through a book of the Bible. And we stumble upon passages that address areas that we might not necessarily have a bent or interest in, like government. But we need this steady diet. Sometimes we need to eat broccoli, right? So that we can get big and strong. And so this is a passage that I trust will uh, still be profitable to us because it will challenge us to think through, okay, if God is sovereign and God has ordained all things in life, then even through this avenue of government and politics, there's something here for me in which to understand the grace of our Savior more and something here for me in which I can obey and trust uh, the Lord and Savior all the more. And so uh, follow along as I read our section of Scripture, Romans 13, verses 1 to 7, and then we will pray for the Lord's help. Romans 13, beginning in verse 1, this is the Word of God. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let's pray. God, as we open your word, we ask for your help. We ask that you would open our hearts, that you pierce through our pride, our unengagement even, and that you would rivet us upon the cross of Christ, that we would behold Jesus not only as Savior, but also as Lord, that he is the King of kings. And because he is one who wields authority and uses it in a perfect fashion for our good and for your glory, we pray that we would, out of response, desire to be faithful with the authority entrusted to us, to know how to respond rightly to the authorities placed over us, that in all things we might worship and render all glory and honor to you. And so help us now, humble our hearts, that we might be soft and malleable, formed by the teaching of your word, that we might become more and more like Christ. So use this section of scripture to 
edify us, to stretch and challenge our preconceived notions, that we bring them all under submission to the authority of Scripture, knowing that you are good and what you have revealed is for our good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Those words might be familiar to you. They are declared by Jesus Christ in John 19, verse 11, when he stood before Pontius Pilate. And while his fate seemed to be in the hands of this Roman governor, Jesus, Jesus, what does he do? He appeals to a higher court. Pilate's rule, he says, was one given from above, from God himself. He would have no say on the matter without God's consent. And yet at the same time in those words, there was no denying Pilate possessed the ability to deliver Jesus or to release him. You read between the lines and while Pilate's authority is a given one, Jesus himself acknowledges it is also a genuine one. I don't know if you've ever read that passage and been left stumped. You know, what are we to do with these various tiers of authorities? How are we as Christians to relate and respond to the government when we also believe in a sovereign God? Well, Paul attempts to shed light on this topic tonight. Because in our passage, he will teach, he will expound on the role of government and our responsibilities as followers of Christ to earthly sovereigns and to our heavenly father. Now, a disclaimer from the get-go, there is no way one sermon can explain or exhaustively answer all the questions we might have about politics and government. Think of this message as a conversation starter not an ender. Okay, so let's set the bar really low for my sake as well. But what I hope is that we would walk away, we would leave tonight with a greater desire to study the scriptures, to continue to dialogue with one another, learn together, to grow in our faith and understanding of God and the government. I also want to make a few preliminary remarks to set the table for us before we get going. First, our country acknowledges and maintains the separation of church and state. Church and state. We don't have time to dive into this, but long story short, the state shouldn't micromanage and meddle into all the affairs of the church. You know, the government has no jurisdiction over uh, distributing communion or baptizing people. Conversely, the church doesn't operate and act as our nation's governing body. The church shouldn't be in the business of writing and enacting laws. However, while distinct, while separate, we have to realize there is overlap between the two. So yes, the state shouldn't replace the church, but we must realize laws are always tied to and based upon religious beliefs, religious convictions, religious values. For example, laws against murdering someone presuppose a morality of what's right and wrong. It presupposes why human life is distinct, precious, different than, say, the life of an animal. Such an ethic is founded, again, upon religious values, whether we're aware of it or not. On the other hand, while the church shouldn't run our country, we must realize that the church is political by nature. The Bible is replete with the themes of citizenship, kingdom, and Christ as Lord. Our faith is personal, yes, but that doesn't mean it is private. No one, atheist or Christian, checks their beliefs at the door. Our convictions emerge in the public arena. And so sure, there is to be separation 
of church and state generally, broadly. But listen, it is impossible to separate faith and politics personally. Church and state, second introductory remark, God prescribes the function of government, but not the form of government, okay? We have to be careful of reading into scripture. The Bible speaks clearly and loudly on the role, the purpose of government, but the Bible is rather silent on the nitty gritty details, the nuts and bolts, whether a government should be a monarch, oligarchy, or democracy, whether Christians should belong to the Republican or Democratic party. There may be good and biblical arguments for or against each, but we go too far if we say God endorses a particular presidential candidate or political affiliation. He doesn't designate the form, but the function of government. We'll see that in our passage. The third thing to keep in mind, we must remember there is a discrepancy, sometimes a huge, enormous discrepancy between the ideal and the reality. And what we will observe in our passage is the ideal, the blueprint, what God desires in a perfect world. But guess what? We need to be realistic about our reality. We live in a fallen world, a sin-marred world, where sinners are placed in positions of authority and power can be abused. Now, that doesn't mean we automatically rebel against government and throw out the baby with the bathwater. You know, as Christians, our obedience is not primarily contingent upon whether we think an administration is worthy of obedience, but whether we think God is. We are not those who sigh and resign because we are without hope. We hope in God, and therefore, we support and labor towards his designs for politics, for government. Because here's another reality. The fact that Paul, the great apostle, dedicates time and space in his magnum opus to speak on government shows us that this is significant. This is important. It falls under the umbrella of what he has been pressing into our hearts since the beginning of Romans 12, that we offer our bodies, that we devote the entirety of our being as a living sacrifice. You see, our attitude and relationship to governing authorities is more than our civic duty. It is our spiritual duty, another occasion to worship our God. In fact, if you look at where our verses are situated in the book of Romans, you'll see that government is not only about worship, but love. Our passage tonight is sandwiched between Paul's exhortation on love. It comes after Romans 12, 9 to 21, and how we are to express sincere love to believers and unbelievers. And it comes before Romans 13, 8 to 10, and how the fulfillment of the law is manifest in Christian love. So our submission to authority is then, in some sense, some way, one avenue in which we express our love for God and our love for others. With that all said, let me give you a simple and short outline that you should have there in there in your bulletin for what we will cover tonight. Regarding the government, we'll first observe our God-given mandate. Our God-given mandate. Look again at verse 1. Paul writes, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. We'll stop there. I want you to observe how sweeping this is. Every person, literally in the Greek, every soul is to subject or submit themselves to governing authorities. It's the idea of ordering, arranging yourself underneath someone or something else. No conditions in this text are offered. There's nothing about if you find an official to be competent or if you agree with the current cabinet's foreign policy or spending habits. 
Paul, Paul makes no exception. Instead, he makes God's expectations known. He says obedience is to be the norm. Now, yes, there are unique situations where disobedience may be warranted. We'll address that later on. But what's typical, what's characteristic of the Christian, what is to be our default setting is being subject, submitting to governing authorities. Now, submission has a bad rap, but it doesn't have to. We tend to think of submission as demeaning, as weakness, as blind compliance. But submission can be good, can be beneficial. It can even be beautiful. Think of kids who, or students who submit to their teachers. They do it so that they can excel, so that they can learn at school. Or think of freak athletes who submit to their not-so-athletic coaches so that they can play as a team. They can win the Super Bowl, right? If you look at football coaches, they look like they don't play football. But yet, these strong, athletic players come under the direct orders of their coaches to achieve victory. Now, maybe we're hesitant to submit because we're well aware of the failures of governing officials. It's glaring. It's obvious. You know, we are incensed by the ineptitude of the president or those who have previously held office or our minds can recall the atrocities committed under the reign of certain dictators, those who are corrupt. You know, we shiver at the names of Ho Chi Minh, Stalin, and the infamous Hitler. And we think to ourselves, certainly, certainly, Paul wouldn't require us to submit to such authorities, right? Perhaps. But listen, the apostle was no stranger to wicked and maniacal rulers. He lived under one, the emperor Nero. Nero would have made those other rulers look like saints. This emperor was notorious for his whimsical nature, for his cruel and barbaric practices. He had the city of Rome burn so he could expand his kingdom, so that he could build more. And someone had to take the fall for such destruction. Nero was clever. He pinned it upon the Christians, sparking national outrage, national persecution of believers. Nero's obsession with fire was taken a step further because historians record how he often kept his royal massive garden glowing at night with these special candles. What were they? They were Christians. Christians fastened to the cross, dipped in wax, and burnt to a crisp. This was the governing authority ruling in Paul's day. This was who was in power when Paul was writing his letter to the Romans. You see, the apostle does not sit in an ivory tower. He himself submitted to a government more unjust and gruesome than what we will ever experience. One so unfair and brutal, it would literally cost them his head. Paul would die under Nero's reign and order. Now, I don't believe Paul is saying that we should just give up and submit to such wicked regimes. We are to submit to the government as they fulfill their God-ordained role. But I bring up the context, I cite these examples because our inclination is to fight the system, right? It's in vogue to resist the power, to stick it to the man. Our culture thrives on this, on spewing vitriol, taking pot shots and vilifying government officials, especially those on the other side. Just scroll through your social media feeds, tune into your local news. And there may be validity to some of these critiques, but as Christians, we are prohibited from participating in the same kind of toxicity. The posture of submission 
doesn't make us doormats or rob us of voicing our concern through proper channels, but the posture of submission should also produce humility, charity, and speaking as graciously as possible. You don't necessarily have to approve of the individual in power and who they are per se. We might not condone the character of an authority figure, but our submission, you see, is to the position more than the person. And I know it's hard to divorce the two sometimes, but we are charged to submit and show decency and respect to the office because of its role, because of its function, how it serves us in our lives. A parallel that might work, just think of a doctor. As a person, they may not be the paradigm of virtue. Maybe they just are a very nasty, unpleasant person. But you can still submit to their position of power because they serve you. They do their job excellently. I know the illustration breaks down a little bit because certain character flaws may show a person unfit or disqualified. But the emphasis Paul is placing is on our submission to the governing authorities, not necessarily agreeing with everything they do or are about. So one simple takeaway from this first section is to be honest. What's your first impression of the government? What is the first thing that crosses your mind when I mention police officers, district attorneys, house of representatives? Is it a positive reaction or a sour one? And then trace that back so that you discover why. Does your gut reflex reflect any element of submission? Now, this mandate to submit is a big ask. I know that. Paul knows that. Paul understands we won't buy in without good motivation. So for the rest of this passage, he persuades us with a number of reasons to submit. We transition from our God-given mandate to our God-given motivations, our God-given motivations. And the first motivation to convince us to submit is this. Government is appointed by God. Government is appointed by God. Let's read verse one again. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For here's why, here's reason. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Notice where the apostle is putting the focus, not on these governing institutions and authorities, but on God. He's lifting our gaze. All authority originates from God. He is the source, meaning government has a derived authority. There are different circles of authority within our social fabric. In the home, children submit to the authority of their parents for their growth, for their flourishment. In the church, pastors exercise Christ-like authority over the flock. In the state, civic leaders are to use their authority to govern and help the people. And while families, churches, and governments possess a delegated authority, the Bible tells us God alone possesses absolute authority. As one commentator notes, from a human perspective, rulers come to power through force or, her, uh, or popular choice, but the transformed mind recognizes behind every such process is the hand of God. So understand that. God governs the world primarily through worldly government. And this is crucial because if we understand all existing authorities are instituted, appointed, and established by God. It means to disregard, disobey them is to disregard, disobey God himself. Paul makes this connection patently clear in verse two. He says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. 
as Paul has been drilling into our heads from Romans 12 until now, God and our worship of him is to inform everything, including our attitude and relationship to government. But the order is key. Apostle Peter shares the sequence of events in his epistle. In 1 Peter 2, verse 17, which we will providentially hear preached on this Sunday. So if, if I say anything wrong or heretical, Pastor Kim will hopefully clean that all up. But in 1 Peter 2, 17, Peter commands Christians to do this. He says, fear God, honor the emperor. Fear God, honor the emperor. In other words, fear God and then you will honor the emperor. You see, we may honor others, but there is only one we fear. We may obey, submit to governing officials, but that is because our worship is reserved for God. You acknowledge God as divinely sovereign when you subject yourselves to the earthly sovereigns he has appointed. Truth be told, rulers are not ultimately ruling anything. God reigns on high. Are you hit by the ramifications of this? It means if your life is marked by civic disobedience, you might not have a government problem. You might have a God problem. Rebellion is as old as the Garden of Eden. And the fundamental issue then in Genesis and today is whether we will submit to the authority of God. Paul elaborates by using a collection of peculiar labels throughout this passage. If you, you can see some of them if you jump down to verse 4. So he continues and he says, For he, uh, personifying government, so he's now talking about government, For he, government, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he, the government, is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Uh, let's skip down to verse 6. Actually, let's just continue reading through. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities, the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. So did you catch that? God's servant, servant of God, ministers of God. You know, we might associate such titles with who? Pastors or missionaries. But Paul is calling school teachers, mailmen, social workers, firefighters, politicians, and public defenders. He's calling them all servants of God. So get that. Corey and I used to be the same, right? I mean, even though he's changed jobs, he's still a servant of God, but you get my point. Paul is shifting our view. He wants to reorient how we see governing authorities to motivate us to submit. So examine. How do you see, how do you even talk to people in these positions? Are you condescending because you make more money than them? because there is a certain level of prestige with your occupation? Do you, dismiss or, um, or do you dismiss or speak to such authorities with disdain because frankly, they annoy you, or at least their job does? Or are you motivated to treat and comply because you recognize they carry divine authority, that they work and serve on behalf of Almighty God? For those of you who are in these occupations, in these positions of power, do you see your employment as appointed by God? That you are sent into these sectors and these spheres of society, not so that you can earn a paycheck or climb the corporate ladder, but to show yourself as a servant of the Lord. That by your patient demeanor, your gentle speech, your diligence and punctuality, it is evident to everyone. God is your boss and you ultimately submit to him. Use your influence over those you manage 
those you oversee to mirror how God exercises his authority with grace, excellence, and integrity. Paul presents another motivation for our submission. So not only that government is appointed by God, but second, government is appointed for our good. Government is appointed for our good. Let's back up to verse three. It says, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Again, I want to remind you that this is speaking generally, ideally, okay? There is no perfect government this side of eternity, but God has delegated authority to promote good and curb evil. There's both a positive and a negative function. Sure, it is easy to point out the shortcomings of a government in achieving this, but I think it's because it's just as easy to take our government for granted. Is it a faultless system? By no means. Is it better than nothing? Absolutely. Absolutely. As our, verse, our, as our verses say, if there was no terror to bad conduct, there would be terror all around. Just consider the alternatives. Have you watched horror movies where it's pure anarchy? Have you ever read Lord of the Flies or Hunger Games? Have you ever heard of the dread from living in a country with an unstable or non-existent government? Countries like Sudan or Somalia. I mean, if for some insane reason you decide to visit Somalia, the U.S. State Department recommends you to do this, to draft a will and a proof-of-life protocol just in case you're taken hostage. You can look it up on the website. It's crazy. They will tell you to leave DNA sample with your medical provider so someone can identify you if you die out there. That's wild. You see, government establishes some measure of stability and order so that we can live with some peace, some security. We may complain about the speed limit, but can you picture the chaos that would ensue without them? You'd have people dangerously flooring it, flying down the freeway, topping three digits. On the other hand, I would probably be greatly annoyed, angry, upset at the Asian grandma driving slower than a turtle because there's no standard benchmark of 65. On a serious note, how about other scenarios? Locked doors, I'm sure, would do little to assure us of safety if thieves and murderers were not apprehended, if they were not punished. You know, they wouldn't care or refrain from breaking and entering or killing others. It would be a very scary world to live in. Or just imagine calling 911 in a time of crisis only to discover there is no one else on the other side of the line. You see, the existence of governing authorities, the possibility of being thrown in jail or sentenced to death even deters crime from being committed. In fact, that's what our text tells us. Verse four notes how the government is permitted at times to bear the sword, to mete out justice. As we study last time in Romans, we are to never avenge ourselves. So what are we to do? Well, in his first advent, Jesus came to bear our judgment. When he returns, he will come to bring judgment. But until then, God grants the government the authority to act as a placeholder, as an avenger on his behalf. It was said that the emperor Trajan would gift district governors a dagger, a dagger to 
represent and remind them of this responsibility. And as he handed them this little sword, he would tell them, for me. This is for me, and if necessary, in me. That's awesome, right? That's so hard. (laughs) I wish I could say that, but I'm weak. You know, daggers are pointy and sharp, and I probably faint. But the idea is this. No person lives outside government's purpose to encourage good and dissuade, punish bad. No one is above the law. The government is appointed for our good. Now, at this juncture, I think it's appropriate. I do want to pause and mention how messy laws can be. Uh, One local pastor insightfully points out that there is a wide gap between biblical principles and government policies. And the danger is to advocate for a particular policy and then go hunting, go looking in our Bibles for some sort of warrant, some proof text. But that's a backwards approach to how we should think about politics and policies. As Christian, our starting point, our foundation is God's word. So we need a robust handle on biblical principles to then shape the sorts of laws and legislations we should approve or advocate for. And if this were not challenging enough, there are often multiple principles in play, which requires us to wrestle with which one to prioritize, how they fit together. And a lot of times, I will admit, there is not a single clean solution. Instead, we have to wrestle. With a lot of wisdom and humility, we strive to do our best. Let me give you a case study. Take immigration. Now, the Bible is clear about loving our neighbors, caring for outcasts, outsiders, and foreigners. But how is this supposed to translate into the rules and regulations for our country, for immigration? The principle may be clear, the policy, not so much. Do we allow anyone and everyone into the USA? If not, how many should be granted entrance every year? Who qualifies and why? What are the steps to gain citizenship? Here's another wrinkle to the dilemma. What about other biblical principles? What about the biblical principle of being wise stewards? That might require us to be shrewd, to factor in the amount of resources available. I mean, it would suck if so many immigrants became citizens only to be stuck in poverty because they don't have enough to get started or the means to succeed. You can see why this is difficult, right? And this is one issue we briefly touched on. What are we to do with universal healthcare, gun control, public education, and many other hot button topics? We hold on to our principles, but the policies are tricky because there are so many variables to weigh and consider. And what this reveals to us is that we need to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. In other words, we need to be diligent in our study of scripture and charitable in our conversations as we try to hash this out. And I stress these two qualities. We can't just champion our own preferences or ideals or what we think is right and true. We need to be anchored in God's truth to land on the right and appropriate biblical principles. Now, I read a recent Babylon Bee title, which is a satire website. And the title was, Man Who Doesn't Read the Bible, Also Chief Authority on What Jesus Would Do Today. And it's funny, but it's also kind of sad because it hits too close to home. Now, at the same time, because bridging the gap between principle to policy is so complex, we need to be patient, kind, thinking the best of other brothers and sisters in Christ. There is never room for sin as we discuss, even as we debate over these matters. Our convictions about what Christ would be for must match our conduct of how Christ would behave. Remember, grace and truth, grace and truth came through Jesus. 
So government is appointed by God. Government is appointed for our good. Finally, the last motivation Paul offers, government is about the glory of God. Government is about the glory of God. The apostle summarizes in verse seven, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now at first glance, this might not seem to have anything to do with the glory of God, but it is underpinning this verse and I would argue the entire passage. So let me try to draw it out for us. What is the lesson here in verse seven? Give to governing authorities what they deserve. That's the paraphrase. Give to governing authorities what they deserve. Hopefully you can see the connection now. On earth, yes, but surely, surely in heaven. Look at how comprehensive this command is. You have what's tangible like taxes and revenue. Taxes cover direct charges from the government, like property tax. Revenue would be more indirect, something like a sales tax, where a clothing store, you know, withholds some money and then they pay the government. You have taxes and revenue. You have intangibles like respect and honor. So instead of bashing and casting such authorities in the worst light possible, we are to speak and treat such people with dignity, with regard. Paul is starting from the ground floor and building up. Taxes, revenue, honor, and respect are held on the same level. Be faithful in the seemingly tedious, mundane, and ordinary because our obedience in the small details demonstrate our obedience to a big God. After all, reading this verse probably jogs our memory about a particular gospel account to what Alessandro read to start our service to when the Pharisees and Herodians approached Jesus to trap him with a question on taxes. They asked Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Should we pay them or not? And how does Jesus answer? Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God. Jesus is not saying that there are two distinct categories. And we have to partition and determine what goes to Caesar and then what goes to God. No, Jesus' point is everything belongs to God. It's all God's. And therefore, that is decisive, determinative for how we render to Caesar. You follow? The latter envelops the former. So before we can even deal with politics and government, we need to be decidedly Christian, to be distinctly Christian in our thinking, in our acting. Have you rendered to God the things that are God's? Which is to say, have you given him your all? Because only then can you properly render to Caesar, render to career, render to friendships, to the future. It was C.S. Lewis who said, put first things first and second things are thrown in. Put second things first and you lose both first and second things. Paul, in our passage, is placing his finger on different slices of life to see if anything has been held back from the lordship of Christ, from the governance of God himself. Is it your stewardship of time, your romantic relationship, your aspirations in the workplace, or even your politics and your submission to authority figures. This is Romans 12, one to two all over again. When we are devoted to God, then we learn how to glorify him in everything, including as we have seen from Romans 12, how we serve in the church, how we love one another, and today, how we submit to government. And that's why under unique circumstances, we may have to choose civic disobedience. But listen to me carefully. This should be rare and as a last resort. Here's a working guideline. When the government clearly prohibits 
what God clearly commands or when the government clearly commands what God clearly prohibits, then we disobey. But I hope you caught the keyword. Clearly, okay, clearly. It can't be a twisting of the scriptures to serve your selfish desire to skirt submitting to authority. You can't be like, well, the Bible tells me to invest to, to invest in heaven, to lay up treasures in heaven. So I'm going to be dishonest about this refund or cheat the tax system. And then I can give more to the church. It doesn't work that way. That's wrong. That kind of gamesmanship is the stuff of the Pharisees, the stuff that Jesus condemns. If you disobey the government, it needs to be explicitly in obedience to God. And when it is unclear and in the gray, we should be very cautious and very slow to move forward. I think that's why Paul appeals, in some sense, to our conscience back in verse 5. We subject ourselves for the sake of conscience. As our convictions align with the teaching of scriptures, as they are biblically informed, and we know we cannot depart from the teaching of God's word and what we believe to honor the Lord, to glorify not our desires, but to glorify God. And this is exemplified in the scriptures. You have the Hebrew midwives who only resisted after Pharaoh demanded the blatant murder of innocent babies. Or when Darius issued a decree banning prayer, the prophet Daniel didn't parade his defiance but he wasn't shy about continuing in prayer. Or Acts 5, where the apostles were brought before the council and strictly charged to stop preaching the gospel. And Peter wasn't trying to show up the council, but he was forthright with where he stood. We must obey God rather than men. And when the two are in clear conflict, pitted against each other, we know where our loyalty lies. Such courage and conviction was also, or has also been demonstrated in history. Uh, One scholar uh, recounts a story. This was uh, in World War II when the Nazis were adamant about their diabolical intentions. They abused their power. They were racist in their policies. A local pastor called them out on it. He rebuked the government for their mishandling of authority. And the government banned him from ministering, from preaching the gospel. But he couldn't do that. He couldn't waver from proclaiming the hope of Christ. And as a result, that pastor was thrown in jail. And this isn't Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you're wondering. But uh, the story continues, and a prison chaplain visits this pastor and has the gall to ask, what brings you here? Why are you in prison to which the pastor responded with a question of his own. Brother, why are you not in prison? Christian, we don't have to force the issue or create a crossroad where unnecessary. But should we be brought to a fork in the road, we know where our allegiance is. Practice, let your lips and lives match. You claim, you call God Lord, then seize the opportunity to show it in how you submit to government. Because at the end of the day, our salvation is not in which political party holds more sway or which public policies pass, but in Jesus Christ. Our concern is not primarily social reform, but God's will performed. Caesar and the emperor may sit in their seat of power, The president may dwell in the Oval Office, but never forget, Christian, Jesus is on his throne. And when the edicts of Rome or the law of the land prescribe something clearly contrary to the law of Christ, we declare with Peter, we must obey God. We answer to him. His mandate is ultimate because he is our motivation. Government is about the glory of God. We begin this sermon hearing the strong words of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. 
And we end this sermon hearing the strong words of Jesus after his resurrection. Matthew 28. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. What was temporarily, temporarily entrusted to Pilate belongs inherently to Christ. Only Jesus is like no other king. He does not rule with the iron fist or bully others into submission. He governs his people with love, righteousness, and justice. And this he demonstrates so fully when the king of kings dies for his people on the cross to rescue them from their sin and deliver them into his kingdom, kingdom of light. And we prove ourselves to be citizens of heaven. How? By how we submit to his authority. Initially, when we repent and believe and continually as we do so every day after. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, to obey, to submit to all that I have commanded you. Beloved, we observe what he commands. We obey the government God has appointed because when we do, we're doing something greater. We're showcasing Jesus Christ for who he is our Savior, and our Lord. Let's pray. God, what a sobering passage because none of us can escape what is required of us. We have been placed within this world under governing authorities, but the secret is to have our gaze turn heavenward to see those in positions of power as under your jurisdiction, your purview. God, that you govern all things and authorities in the land are but secondary, delegated authorities given to us for our good, but ultimately so that we might worship, so that we might grow in our obedience, that we might reflect Christ in our posture, in our demeanor, in our attitude. And so give us grace. Father, help us to care about these things because you care, because it is for our good, for our joy, for your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.